0: Welcome to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grisaf and this is RFI Group's insight-backed podcast focused on key trends, thought leadership, and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. This week, we're at MoneyConf in Dublin. MoneyConf is a two-day event where the world's biggest banks and fintech experts come together to discuss the changing dynamics and future of all things money, payments, and technology. In part one of our MoneyConf coverage, we speak with Kenneth Lynn, Founder and CEO at Credit Karma, Charlie Mortimer, Co-Founder at Moneybox, Andre Liver, Director of Engineering at Shopify, and Nathan Gill, Vice President and Head of Solutions at Verifone Europe. Here's what they had to say. It's such a pleasure
1: to be joined by Kenneth Lynn of Credit Karma. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Just flown in from San Francisco to Dublin where we're at MoneyConf 2018. So tomorrow you will be sharing some thoughts on autonomous finance and whether it will change the world. So can you give me a bit of a description as to what you mean by autonomous finance and how it's going to change the world?
2: sure so when you take a look at the industry over the last i would say 20 or 30 years technology internet data has been quite disruptive in a lot of industries so you can think about that from a data perspective google and social and our ability to communicate but when you think actually about finance it's actually been relatively unchanged i think payments have gotten more digital but a lot of the existing consumer pain points still exist so for many consumers finance is still a very confusing Uh, area of their life. It's overwhelming. It's complicated. And I think in the next five years to 10 years, you're actually going to see a meaningful step forward with the use of data, with the use of machine learning, with the use of cloud compute. And that's really the context of the conversation. So, you know, whereas the last 10 or 20 years of finance uh, from a digital perspective is about money movement, about payments, we think the next five or 10 years is going to be this autonomous finance concept that we're talking about, which is letting machines help consumers and people really automate their money, which is something that has not existed before. Mm.
1: And for this to happen, crucial to have data, access to that data and be able to intelligently use that. Staggering figures for Credit Karma, so over 80 million Americans are allowing you to access their data. So how have you been able to do this as a brand? And what value-added services are you already bringing to your customers?
2: Yeah, so I think it's all about trust. I was talking to someone else today, like that seems to be one of the major themes at this conference. And I think that's absolutely right for us. Credit Karma, we've been around for a little bit more than 11 years in the United States. And it's all about being able to provide consumers a reason to believe. So at Credit Karma, we have given over, I believe the number is two and a half billion free credit scores and reports a way to our user base, Uh, we have provided tools that have eliminated over $6.5 billion worth of erroneous debt on our platform. So we give consumers a reason to believe, a reason to trust, I think that's the hallmark of Credit Karma. Over half of our users are actually through word of mouth or viral, Mm. non-marketing oriented. Um, So I think that's an important aspect and then I think to your point around the data side, I mean this is where I think the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right? the information on those 80 million members and the way that they transact and what are the best products, that's the data that you need to actually create this platform that we're talking about. This is where the AI comes in, right? Being able to model what have other people like you done, what is the best optimization to get you from point A to point B. Those are the data points that are crucial in making the next generation of fintech algorithms and experiences.
1: Mm. The possibilities are so exciting but as you said trust is so key and so important here especially with so many high-press data breaches, particularly in the credit space. And to put it into a European context, as we are here in Dublin, GDPR and PSD 2 is really about putting that data control back in the consumer's hands. Are you able to give some tips to some European companies, potentially, around how to ensure that trust within your consumers?
2: Sure. I mean, I always call it the Reddit test, right? And I don't know how big Reddit is in this today, uh, outside of the US, but I actually think it's pretty big worldwide. Yeah, Reddit, yeah. Reddit is the most largest crowd of both astute uh, technologists who are highly cynical, right? And I love that context. I think if you use that as your guidepost of how would people view that experience in terms of the things that you're doing, would that fly? I think that's a meaningful way to measure it. So I I think that's certainly one. But two, I think you always have to be more and more consumer-centric. I think the days of consumers blindly trusting in a big brand because they have your money or a big brand because they're a big technology company, no longer exists, right? So I think you have to build everything, your experiences, your brand, your credibility, with that lens. And I think we've done it ahead of regulation, so to your point around all of the regulatory things that you have in the UK, uh, EU and in the UK, well, we think about it like, well, a company should be able to do that on their own. You shouldn't need legislation to say what is right, what is the right privacy model, yeah. what is the right way to build a business. So I think you should be ahead of those things, not behind those things.
1: Yeah, I saw a panel earlier today with uh, three European banks of various sizes and experiences, and that was exactly their point. Is PSC two isn't going to change this industry? It's the organisations that have to change it and have to innovate. So interesting. And in terms of Credit Karma, what have you got coming up that's exciting? Uh,
2: so for us, we, you know, we continue to focus on consumer-oriented features. So, for, for example, things like uh, ID monitoring, dark web scans. You know, we think that there are more and more data breaches. And to the extent that we can add more features uh, that help consumers be more aware and be more cognizant of all the risks in the space, we think those are important features to build. Uh, Well, I think there's always a lot of things, right? So I would say that as we continue to expand, we're looking more internationally in terms of where are the other markets to, to grow. But for us, you know, we have new data protection and identity protection features that we're rolling out in the U.S. And then we've, you know, also have Uh, New technologies like, you know, more chat-oriented messaging and, you know, ways to actually communicate around more complex transactions. So for us, you know, there's one key theme, which is helping consumers make financial progress. And we have as many, you know, we continue to look for tools and technology to make that happen. Mm.
1: And certainly everybody is watching you around the globe. Uh, we're just finishing uh, all of our podcast interviews at this event with a question around buzzwords. So at conferences in this style, there are so many. Um, so if you had to pick one that you think is really worth the conversation and one that is maybe just hype, what would they be?
2: Uh, well, I think blockchain is probably one that is as a technology is you know, certainly worth it. I think as a technology, it's certainly interesting. I think to go back to the privacy side, I mean, I think we've all seen the GDPR, right? And that it seems like everyone's changing their privacy policy. But again, I think these are things that companies should have done from the get-go. I think they're, you know, following the letter of law. But hopefully most companies were already, uh, already in that spirit of that law. So hopefully nothing is changing. And that's a bunch of hype. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank
1: you so much for joining me today, Kenneth. You bet. Thank you. By Charlie Mortimer, co-founder of Moneybox. Thanks so much for being here with me today. So we're at MoneyConf talking all about money, which is very relevant to what you're doing. You launched two years ago, 2016. Tell me about what have been some of the highs and the lows for you in terms of starting Moneybox.
3: Well, well, thank you for having us. I guess Moneybox, to kind of give you the context, is an app that helps typically younger people to start building their financial future. So we have an idea of roundups whereby people can kind of make small incremental savings as they go along towards whatever their kind of financial goal is. And I guess over the last two years we've had you know, a lot of highs when we first launched was you know, day one when you wonder, will you ever get any customers? <laughs> it's slightly nerve wracking. So that was a real high when actually someone signed up. And then there's, there's ongoing challenges with starting running any business, as I'm sure everyone can imagine. One of our frustrations is we've and offer for the best kind of possible service. And in some ways we're constrained by... Um, existing processes we use direct debit as an example for payment processing which can be quite slow and you know in the modern world customers expect things to happen instantly and so for us to have to say well actually in six or seven days we'll be able to take payment can be frustrating for us and for customers so I think there's a constant battle against kind of some of the existing practices but you know in general I think we hopefully as a team have quite a lot of fun you know we're very proud that we're helping a lot of people to build their futures.
1: Mm, Absolutely and it's fantastic to meet people like yourselves that actually really care about this financial health of their consumers it feels like the industry is taking a bit of a turn to really make sure that consumers are benefiting and it's not just a sales pitch all the time the proposition is is fantastic but there are increasingly more competitors in this financial health space so how do you stand to differentiate
3: we think the the hardest thing in trying to build up your wealth or build your financial future is to take the first step so lots of people think yes i should be investing towards a house towards my children's university towards my retirement whatever it might be Um, And whilst everyone has that on their to-do list at number 10, no one ever actually does it. So I think for us, what's really important is to find a way to get someone to take that first step. The concept of roundups that we have, everyone seems to like. And I think once you get someone to start to engage, you can then go on that journey with them and do a lot more around content, which we're doing a lot more of as kind of build out the team. Um, around education, and actually, once you've got that spark of interest, you kind of go from someone who hasn't been engaging to someone who starts to engage. It's like if someone starts getting into fitness quite quickly, they get very into it and care, check their progress, etc. you know, we see that where people who haven't been interested in this area before start maybe with roundups as a kind of way of getting going, but then within, say, six, 12 months, they're logging in quite regularly, reading all of the content about different kind of investment ideas and theories and actually starting to kind of really engage in finance which they've never done before which is really kind of pleasing for us to see and in terms of competitors i think there's there's lots of kind of different competitors as as we see them you know i think we're relatively unique in the uk in terms of offering kind of truly mobile investment options so you know, things like a lifetime ISA, if, if someone wants to buy a house is a fantastic product or can be a fantastic product and so that's something that's relatively unique to us we are offering these kind of in a mobile way and hopefully in an engaging accessible jargon free way so you know there's lots of other different kind of savings apps I guess or um, other ways in which you can budget but for us it's really about taking that first step on a journey towards kind of building your wealth be it for that house or be it for your kind of retirement your children etc. Mm.
1: And it's great to see this innovation in the saving space beyond just pricing and interest rates it's fantastic and in terms of your customers, so they need to, to be able to use your services, they need to allow you access to their financial information, is that correct?
3: It, to use our services, you need to open an investment account. Right. Most people open ISAs, um, which has you know, various requirements around your kind of uh, personal details. If you want to use the roundup part of the service, then yes, we need to access the kind of transactional level data yeah. to make roundups possible. But it's interesting that whilst roundups are kind of you know, to some degree what people talk about when they talk about what we're doing, it's actually very much kind of the the thing that gets people interested, mm. but actually isn't kind of their reason for continuing to use us. We see quite quickly that people like move away from roundups and put in twenty, thirty, forty pounds a week, or if they're paid a bonus, they might put in extra five, ten thousand pounds. And actually, whilst the roundups is the reason almost to start, quite quickly it becomes a, a kind of a more regular weekly savings or investing
1: um, option. So the roundups sort of the entry point. But are you seeing any struggles in terms of consumers trusting you to have that access to their financial information? Because as we enter a PSD2 world, uh, you've got payment initiation services that are going to be allowing more control to customers about who can access their bank. So maybe it's going to become more of a normality. They're going to become increasingly comfortable with it. What are your thoughts on that?
3: so when we first started we were you know we know that it's a big ask to say to people please give us this kind of information and it's equally quite a big ask to ask someone to open an ISA with a company they haven't really heard of so I think you know we think that we have to earn earn that level of trust well lots of different ways we have to give a great service we have to respond well to customers we have to kind of make sure that everything works exactly as it should and that we kind of meet those expectations Mm -hmm. we're doing everything we can to kind of earn that trust but what we haven't really seen is that that's a a kind of a huge sticking point for for customers in that kind of sign-up journey now I think the the world of open banking should in time make this better, yeah. make the whole experience better for customers. And if you look at we've integrated with say Starling and Monzo um, directly and if you take for example the Starling integration, it's so much better for the customers. And it's a much better experience than you know the kind of any other sort of way of us getting that transactional level data. And hopefully you know as the other banks start to catch up for the open banking piece it just makes it a better experience for everyone and easier for us.
1: So talking of Starling we just had Anne Bowden on stage talking specifically around PSC2, more specifically around open APIs, which is her area of, of passion. Uh, what are some of the sessions that you've seen
3: today that have really resonated with you? Yes, I mean like, we uh, obviously know the guys at Starling, and they're doing great stuff, and integrating with them is, is brilliant. In terms of the other sessions, so hearing about Lemonade and their mm-hmm. journey to transform insurance has been very interesting, and in how they can use different behavioural economics to to slightly change the game of insurance by changing the kind of incentives and how people start to view that. And I think to some degree, like there's interesting parallels with us, whereby you know when we talk to our customers, we'll see that people historically of our customer base wouldn't have done 50 pounds a month of a a direct debit into an investment platform. Even though they may have wanted to, they'd never actually have done that. Whereas doing 25 pounds a week, is completely different and 100% fine. And I think you see different manifestations of this kind of throughout what we're doing. And in some ways that's similar to the kind of the lemonade story whereby if you can slightly change the game and make people think about it in a slightly different way, it feels much more approachable and you actually act quite differently. You know, our example around kind of weekly payments is kind of true 20 pounds a week is less than 50 pounds a month yeah. somehow and every customer says that yeah. um, so i think i think that's really interesting
1: yeah and he spoke a lot about behavioral economics and that sort of customer psyche which is what you're tapping into there and so we're closing off with a question because we're at a big conference bud's words are being thrown around left right and center so if you had to pick one that you think is really worth the conversation and one that you think is just hype what would they be
3: so i do think the kind of behavioral economics side is very interesting and kind of something that in lots of small ways can impact kind of every business and it's becoming more of a, a thing, you know, we were just talking as a team, like, should we have a behavioural economist on the team? Would it be something that kind of would change how we start to think about some of these incentive structures? Um, and I think that would be really interesting. So I think that's something where it's very powerful because quite small changes have huge impacts, which is great for both customers and for businesses because it's hard to do stuff. So if you can do small stuff that has big changes, that's kind of incredibly important. I guess my personal uh, sort of bugbear, bug, I guess, in terms of the hype one is, I think the opportunities from the machine learning AI world are huge but I'm not sure if everyone uses those words in the right context yeah. Is actually doing the kind of things that they claim to be so I think you know the, the real kind of opportunity to use the data that's increasingly available in powerful ways is definitely there Whether people are doing what they're claiming to do who knows
1: well thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today Charlie
3: brilliant thank you very much
1: Joined today by Andre Liver of Shopify, who is here all the way over from Montreal <laughs> and uh, representing, I think, one of the biggest FinTech successes for Canada and offering tools to help merchants with their transactions. I wanted to pick up on something you've recently said, Andre, which was, let's kill the checkout. So what do you mean by this?
4: People have been latching on to that, that phrase ever since uh, we've been talking about it for the past you know year two years. Yeah. And people immediately associate that kill the checkout phrase with, oh, we're going to solve the problem of card abandonment. The industry averages, of, or the statistics that people share, around you know, 69, 70% of carts become abandoned. That will never go to zero. As a shopper, shoppers will always go and, and shop on their websites and you know, put something in their cart and then see something else that's better later on and, and go purchase that other thing and you know, essentially abandon that cart. And that, that will always take place. We're not trying to solve that problem. Yeah. We're trying to solve the problem of checkout friction. The checkout forms of today have largely been the same you know, as they were 20 years ago. Yeah. So we're tackling that on several fronts. So we work with a lot of our providers and partners, so Apple Pay, Google Pay. Uh, We were the first platform to launch Google Pay. So those accelerated checkouts are important to us. Uh, we're also working gl- very closely with the W3C on their new payment request standard, which uh, is also has the goal of, of reducing checkout friction by uh, having the browser or the user agent actually controlling the, the entire checkout flow. So over time people will become more familiar with that as a way to perform payment online and then we're also taking matters into our own hands with things like Shopify Pay where yeah. we've essentially reduced checkout across all Shopify stores for repeat customers down to literally a one click checkout experience i've seen tremendous success with Shopify Pay mm.
1: you mentioned around the kind of the standardization and globally the difference in terms of payment experiences and for merchants that want to be offering their services in different countries are such a huge pain point isn't it in the payments world sort of why do you think this is one of the most difficult things to deal with
4: merchants increasingly want to be able to sell internationally Mm -hmm. so a u.s merchant um, would like to sell internationally but they don't necessarily know what payment methods a german buyer for example would like to use so payments acceptance is extremely complex for these merchants so what we try to solve is we try to make it uh, simple for these merchants so that they don't have to worry about Uh, what payment methods international buyers want to use. Yeah.
1: And so we're here at MoneyConf in Dublin and you have great presence in Ireland. So can you talk to me about why you've chosen Ireland as a centre point for European expansion and and sort of how that's working here?
4: Ireland has been uh, critical to our success for our support organisation mostly. We have a lot of remote support personnel located uh, across Ireland. And it's been strategic in terms of a you know a follow the sun type of uh, support around the world from the base in Ireland that we have. We're able to support a lot of a lot of our European customers.
1: Um, and just to finish off, I wanted to get your opinion on which ones do you think are are really transformative to the industry and are true innovations, and which ones we just need to let go. <laughs>
4: at this conference especially there's been a large uh, (laughs) a lot of talk on uh, blockchain and crypto and uh, it's certainly interesting and we're keeping our our eye on on those things and we do experiment from time to time with various uh, blockchain related projects but Really, I think there's a long way to go in that space, so that's a much longer game. In the shorter term, where it's really been innovative, uh, as you've seen uh, some of these companies that have been simplifying international money transfers without the use of blockchain, let's say. That's where some companies have been uh, especially successful and creative.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today, André. Shopify really behind what the future of payments looks like, so it's fantastic yeah. to hear from you.
4: Great, thanks for having me.
1: I'm joined today by Nathan Gill of Verifone, who I've managed to catch. He's just come off stage from a panel talking about pins and passwords and the future of those. And I believe going on stage again this afternoon to have another discussion. Is that right?
5: Yes, the audience should be completely bored of me by that point. But
1: <laughs> Well, let's make sure this goes global to all of our listeners who couldn't make it today. So talking all around sort of customer expectations, particularly at that point of sale and what innovations are happening in those payment trends. So can you give us a bit of an overview to Verifone and yours view on what those big shifts are?
5: Yeah, sure. So Verifone is having to evolve because the market is evolving. There used to be uh, point in time where we developed these really great, highly secure payment devices that would take basic card payments, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and a, a couple of others. The market's evolving much faster than that. We see um, a high demand from a lot of our merchants and a lot of our customers to do more than just accept basic payment. We see new forms of payment every day. There They're the big guys like Alipay and WeChat, uh, but things like PSD2 is driving additional kind of account to account debit type formats. We see banks forming together, like up in the Nordics, where they got together and came up with a new payment method called Mobile Pay, which is now the most popular payment method in, in the Nordics. And so, We, Verifone, are having to respond to this very quickly and the way that we're doing that is we've really changed the entire way that we design and develop our solutions. We've opened them up so that we, Verifone, don't have to develop every new payment method. We don't need to develop every new loyalty application that a merchant might want to take advantage of. We can actually look to our partners in a more of an open environment and involve them in the development process and create effectively a platform that's global because we have 30 million devices around the world in 150 different countries. And our value to these developers, these new payment methods, these loyalty providers, whatever it may be is that you develop your app once, you can make it available across Verifone devices around the world And in doing so, we're providing a much better service to merchants, we're making acceptance a broader category so they can take new forms of payment. We're giving them new ways to manage their business so that they can use these devices not only to accept payment, but to manage inventory, to manage their customer relationships, to grow their business, to manage their accounting. So it's really a consolidation of all the things that are important for a business to run and accept payment coming together in a single device through this open platform.
1: And Europe is really invested in this acceptance of contactless. It's pretty ubiquitous now across Europe and leading really at a global scale. But what is gonna take the customers to shift to the next stage? So it's very habit forming in terms of how people wanna pay. What do you believe is the reason behind low uptake at the moment across Europe in terms of new payment technologies like mobile?
5: The UK has been the poster child for fantastic contactless adoption and there's a reason why. It's obviously, it's a much faster, better experience for the consumer and it's tap and go and it's really a nice evolution of how you pay. I think though the next step of that is going to be a similar experience but with mobile applications and while Apple Pay and Google Pay have been out for some time, I think a lot of people have questioned why is adoption not growing faster. I think the reason being the value for the consumer, there's not enough benefit yet. It's pretty easy to tap a card onto a payment device and walk out, pulling your phone out and, you know, Putting your thumb on a biometric reader is one extra step. And so you as a consumer, you need to have a benefit to doing that. And what we're seeing is that the benefit is going to be the digitization of loyalty. There's a lot of companies that issue plastic loyalty cards and paper stamp cards. And you as a consumer have to carry around all of these physical (laughs) assets. And in a digital world where you go online and you don't have to deal with any of that stuff, it feels very odd to dig around for something plastic or have a cashier put an ink stamp on a piece of paper it's just super outdated so I think what we'll see is that these mobile wallets whether it's the big guys or the ones that are backed by the banks or new startups that adoption is going to occur when they've successfully integrated loyalty and they've given that consumer more benefit for using that application.
1: Mm. So hopefully gone are the days when your purse or wallet is just bulging full of multiple cards or multiple bits of card that have stamps on it like you said and everything will be more contained within the phone hopefully. So globally then, where are you seeing real leading innovation in terms of payments and also in terms of adoption of payments? And where are you seeing some areas lagging behind?
5: You know, if you look at the developing markets, many parts of Asia, for example, you see these new providers that are just leapfrogging anything in the more, you know, westernized countries and the AliPays and the WeChats and it's literally phenomenal the fact that they've been able to grow those applications such that they're now a part of your everyday life and you're using them for everything and you know they're so big that now in the other parts of the world, the tourist destinations like London and a lot of the other world class cities are now having to accept AliPay and WeChat because of the tourist impact on these markets. So you know such amazing scale there and so we see a lot of payment innovation in those markets. And then You know, probably in the more developed markets, that's where we're not necessarily seeing that level of change in the payment landscape. What we are seeing is that these merchants want to make the process more efficient. You know, we're seeing, for instance, a lot of small merchants in the U.S. and in Europe. They want a single device that does everything for them. They don't want to have a cash register with a separate scanner and a separate payment device that clutters the environment. They want something that's clean. They want something that allows them to engage with a customer on the store floor and talk to them in a a really collaborative way and be able to accept payment as part of that process versus sending them to stand in a queue somewhere before they can actually pay, which takes away from the retail experience. They want to be able to use that same device to scan their inventory and to close their books at the end of the night and have employees check in and check out. So we're seeing in the in the more developed countries a move to create better efficiencies because obviously a lot of these merchants' margins are pretty thin these yeah. days. And they're looking for ways to make things more efficient. And this is one of the ways that we're able to do that for them.
1: Mm, I think it's interesting. And I know that you have just recently released some research showing the kind of willingness of SMEs, particularly to have these new technologies services for payments for their consumers but also as you said those further value add services that you can bring in terms of consolidation and data that they can breed loyalty from as well so we're just finishing off on a question we're asking everyone at moneyconf 2018 which is around buzzwords so at these large scale conferences around the world there's lots of buzzwords thrown around and so what i want to know from you is what ones you think are really worth talking about and which ones are just hype
5: certainly from a european standpoint PSD 2 is talked about a lot and I have to say that you know sometimes it's difficult to see some of the concrete outputs of PSD2 but I think it's caused perhaps some people to be a bit cynical on the amount of change that will occur but I think they're probably not seeing what's happening under the surface and I do believe that PSD2 is going to lead to major major changes like many of these things it's not instant but you see the major shifts are occurring and I think PST, two will have a long-lasting impact in a good way on the ability for companies to offer consumers better, more frictionless, open experiences than they do currently. So I think that's one that's going to last. I think the one, though, that I see everybody talk about and very few people actually even know what they're talking about or understand what they're doing is Omnichannel. Yes. Everybody talks about Omnichannel, but, you know, if you actually really... Do a, a more detailed interview and talk to specific merchants and find out are they really doing omni-channel? ninety five percent of them are not and then at the same time, if you talk to like suppliers and understand do they really have an omnichannel solution most of the time they 're just using that term but don 't really have a comprehensive omnichannel solution so I think that 's one of those buzzwords that uh, you know is, is a bit questionable at the moment.
1: I have a feeling it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon either, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Nathan.
5: Thank you very much. It's good to be here, Sarah.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for part two of this Money Comp series. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check out our Instagram, globaldigitalbanker.com. Twitter at GDB Podcast or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.